I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. It was Christmas time, and my world had changed, fallen apart. We were on the road headed up to see my family. On the outside, it looked like any regular Christmas. A car full of gifts, hodgepodge together, with all of our kids headed to see aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents. At that point, no one in my family knew of our situation, knew of the burden that we held, of the shame. One night on a quick trip, to buy last-minute gifts, I decide to tell a family member. I eke it out. I try to share. I try to hold back my own emotion. And all of a sudden, their emotions come flooding through. I panic. I don't know what to do. Should I have not upset anything? Should I held it close to my chest? What's going to happen now? I can barely handle my own emotions, yet the outpouring of theirs. I don't know what to do. Later on, I learned that the thing I had told had got passed on. In those first few days, the crisis stage of the aftermath of an affair You're searching desperately for anything, any anchor point, any place of solidarity that you can be in connection with. Maybe someone who you trust, who you can entrust your story to. Maybe someone you don't know who's walked the same journey. You're desperate to have something that will hold you in what feels like uh, a storm, wave upon wave of new emotions that maybe you've never even experienced before. And I think it becomes overwhelming to even ask the question, who do I entrust this to? This is the part of the story where we'd be calling in for backup, trying to figure out who's on our side. Who can you depend on? Who can you rely on? Right. Who our first responders are. Who's going to be there to support, to bandage, to ask how we are, not what we should do. How can I support you? I think many couples that uh, we've interacted with since often talk about a differentiation between the person who is perhaps the the victim of an affair and the person who is seen as the victimizer in an affair, right? And that one is often more desperate to put the pieces back together usually than the other. And whichever one feels that need the greatest is usually reaching out for help the most in that moment. And certainly in this case, it was me. Right. 
as the person who had put you through this hell, I was also desperate to put the pieces back together. And so I began to reach out to almost any resource that I knew. But it was much harder for you in that moment. I'm curious if you could speak to that and trying to understand what cocktail of emotions were blocking you from talking about it. You seem to go through like a Rolodex, which you were able to call on people in your life and new stories and threads and were able to throw yourself into that. And on the other hand, for me, I feel like I came up empty. I think that I had two friends that I initially reached out to. And, and after that, there was a vacuum. I felt so much shame. And the story that I had around it was there was something wrong with me or this wouldn't have happened. And so it felt very personal to myself. And I also found that I didn't have space to hold anyone else's emotions. I was barely keeping mine together. And so if I sensed that this information that I would share would cause a big emotional disruption on their end, I stayed away from it because I knew I couldn't hold their stuff, their deeply emotional response and mine at the same time. Right. You're, you're trying to figure out, as I think anyone in a crisis is, what to do next? What's the next step I need to take? The, am I going to work through this? Am I going to stay? Am I going to leave? You're really trying to be very reasonable in that moment. Of course, you're totally flooded with emotion, so it's very difficult to be reasonable. It makes it even more difficult and almost impossible to make those kinds of decisions if not only uh, are you holding your emotions, but now you're holding someone else's. Um, I can imagine that would have felt overwhelming. You're also talking about this emotion of shame, right? Both of us experienced shame, but they were different, right? Mine was a shame related to a sense of wrongdoing. It's totally congruent with the situation. I had done wrong. My character was out of line with uh, my stated values and who I wished to be in the world. So I was converting it almost immediately into guilt that I could act upon and begin to address and take responsibility for. Your sense of shame really was far more paralyzing and it was prompting you to hide. Yeah, I felt like a disappointment. I think I went to that disappointment place where if I was different or this was different or did I choose wrong or did I not see it? or So I put a lot of blame on myself and how I interpreted people to see that um, situation. And so I internalized shame and that really pushed me away from connection. It didn't do me a very good service in the end. So it made me feel smaller and hidden and more internal with my process. Mm. I, I think, you know, in listening to this um, scenario, one of the things that occurs to me is how we've learned to handle hard things prior to an event like this. So 
you know, we hear the discussion about a miscarriage. We keep these things close to us, like not telling that you're pregnant until you're at least out of the first trimester. We're not revealing a baby name because you don't want to be discouraged too quickly. All in all, we hide our most intimate moments, like standing beside you there in the imaging room and watching that ultrasound move through the jelly on your navel as eyes by rogue wave plays on the speaker just overhead and waiting to witness the beating heart of our child, a heart that I will never hear, a mouthless face that will never speak to me, but only stare lifeless from the fog as the technician slumps her shoulders and delivers the news that no one imagines would be the outcome that day. Several years ago, my soul had been crushed and as the song ended, she gathered her clothes and her purse and then escorted us towards the surgery where you were operated on and our lifeless child was removed and I swallowed it all. We left after the surgery, tight-lipped, silent. We went back to celebrate my birthday with friends, friends we didn't tell, friends we didn't talk about a miscarriage with, friends we didn't open up to a surgery about. How could we tell them? How could we let them in? There's things you just don't talk about. You don't talk about losing a life. You don't talk about losing a relationship. You don't talk about having affairs. You keep it hidden. You keep it close. You don't let anyone in because no one will know how to help. We handled the miscarriage pretty similarly in some ways. We fell on the grenade. We're not going to talk about this. We're not going to process this out loud. We're going to hold each other's hands. We're going we're to get tearful together. And then we're going to move on. And we're not going to breathe a word of it. So, you know, a couple of years go by. The play doesn't really change on this too much, at least for you. So in some ways, there was this direct response to shame. But there was also a pattern here of absorbing the shock. And I also didn't want people's influence of their opinions to roll over me. I wanted to be in a place where I understood it for myself and their interpretations of the right, the wrong, the yes, the no, what I should do. Should you leave? Should you stay? I didn't want the pressure of everyone else's interpretations upon me. That was an important aspect. So I think that also gave a little distance as well because I wasn't sure what I thought about it. And I didn't want to be influenced in that way either. Which is really good advice because again, during the crisis phase, you know, uh, the initial shock of that betrayal is so overwhelming. Um, it's certainly uh, destabilized your sense of confidence, your internal world, perhaps even the external world is collapsing. That was certainly our case. That's the wrong time to make a decision in some ways, even though your mind is grasping for how to, but you're still reeling in some ways. So to add a cast of characters who are eager for you to make the decision, you know, like you should leave his ass or you need to stay at all costs, make it work. 
whatever those voices are, they're profoundly unhelpful. Esther Perel talks about in that initial crisis phase, she says that place that you're in when you hit that crisis, your memory fails you and you can only remember the pain in that moment, not the 20 years before or the 10 years that you have invested. And so it's important in that moment to slow down. And I couldn't agree more because you do want to make all kinds of decisions right away. And that includes, I want to burn down this house, Mm. you know, like metaphorically, but slowing down to figure out what in the world is going on and putting people around you that you can trust was so important. I didn't have as many people as I could have. I wasn't quite brave enough. And I will tell you the most beautiful response that I had was one from one of my best friends. And she just said, I'm here for you. What do you need? Mm. And that's all, that was the most beautiful thing. And that's, that's what I could handle at that time. What a beautiful experience and, and gift that your best friend offers you in that moment. And it makes me realize that not everyone is the container for your truth. Not everyone can hold your truth. And there does need to be some discernment in this process. Yeah. One of the things that you have told me is not all information is for everyone. And that's been such a relieving truth. I think that there's part of us that feel like in order to be an authentic person in the world, we have to be all out there. And the truth is, is that we need to have a few people that know us really well and that can hold us. And that's what I learned in this process. When families are involved, when close friends are involved, everything's on the line, right? It has ripple effects. So people aren't necessarily thinking about you. They're thinking about all the ripples that will happen if this relationship doesn't work. Mm. The consequences, right? And in that moment, in that crisis phase, all you need is someone to say, I see you, you're going to be okay. What do you need? And a lot of times it's future focused and it's full of fear. Right. I see you. I see your world. It makes sense. We're going to get through this. How can I support you? I want to support you. I don't know what to say. These are really good responses. They also take someone who is willing to set aside their own experience, their own projections, their own emotions, and allow you to simply be in that moment and be with you, to truly have compassion, right? To be with the emotion. They're not in it. They're not having the same experience. There's a concept in, uh, in psychology that I sometimes refer to as up periscope. An up periscope is this idea of going into the emotion with someone. They're in the sea of emotions. They're in it. You go in it with them, right? As the healer, as the helper. You go in it right there with them, but you've got a periscope up. You can see land. 
You're in it with them, but you also know what's going on. And I think that that is a really beautiful way to think about this role of stepping into a place like that with a person who's in crisis. And one of the worst things in the world that you could do is totally wrap up your emotion into theirs. Like, oh, that son of a bitch, if I could give him a piece of, give me the shotgun, right? I mean, you get really worked up very fast. You can be in something with someone and not share the same emotion or even worse, project yours into it. You have an up periscope, right? You're connected to a grounded source. You see land. And I think that's an important way of thinking about it when you're entering into this with someone, yeah? What you're talking about is the ability to see more. And what I also heard was don't villainize. Someone on the outside doesn't have all of the story. And so it's so easy to come in and put your story on top of it. And I like what you said in that. Maybe I just interpreted it was don't villainize the situation or the person or what's going on. Because there's investment, because there's family, because there's love, because there's history, because there's things that you don't know that have gone on in those walls of that home. So to hold it, and I'm talking about the crisis phase right now, to let it just be held and to support is the most important part of that. Yeah, I didn't say what you just said. That was all you. And it sounded really, really good. (laughs) I just want to say, but to that point, What seeing land, what the up periscope kind of means is right there. Um, Someone who's not villainizing, someone who's not catastrophizing, someone who's not globalizing or universalizing, someone who is not dealing in black and white rigid thinking. That means you're going to have to be selective, right? It really does. And this is why so often people go to professionals because they hope that that's what they're going to get. You know, they're not always right there, but sometimes they stand a better chance than if they just go to a close family member or a close friend who really want to enter into what Tara Brock calls the deliciousness of agreement with you, right? Whatever your mood is, they're going to help spin that wheel. They're going to help keep it going. You know, if you're angry and pissed off, they're going to be angry and pissed off with you. If you're kind of feeling a little hopeful, maybe they'll feel a little hopeful too that they're often going to enter into it with you. So two dangers. One is overlaying their experience on you. The other is just kind of feeding the fire, whatever fire you're in. Neither of those is incredibly helpful uh, when you're seeking safety um, or that anchor point. Yeah, being with a third party that's not emotionally invested is probably really lovely because they're just supporting the whole They don't have the storyline of each friend, of each family member. Now, we weren't great. You know, no one really knows how to do this. As you're talking, it makes me think about when someone dies and we learn about that or someone has this sickness like cancer and we sit with them and we think, oh, my God, I don't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. And the most powerful thing is to just keep showing up and saying, I'm here for you, not having the right thing to say. Now, on the flip side, I don't know if we were doing a great job either, you know, (laughs) saying what we need to say and having conversations about it and being super eloquent. But I do know that there were safety in certain people because they could just walk alongside. And that was really beautiful. What I realized in that moment 
It was too hard to hold her emotions, her disappointments, her fears. Mine were already swallowing me. Somehow, we made it back to the house that had every family member in it and walked in like nothing happened. Then, a couple days later, I get a text from my mom saying, we have to talk. I already know. And of course, I ask, know what? Well, there's only one thing. I call my mom. I want to know what she knows. What's the story that she has? Because I didn't tell her. She informs me that the family member that I shared with was worried and felt like she needed to share. My ears were buzzing, my stomach upset. I was angry, I was confused, embarrassed. She says, make sure to have your husband call your father. And now I feel like a child full of shame. I feel that I shouldn't have told anyone that I was punished for being open. Scrambling to do damage control, I send off a message. Go with something like this. I know that you've shared information about my husband and I. I would appreciate it in the future if you let those be my stories. Now, I wait. Anxiety in my throat. And in return, I don't hear back. All I receive is silence. This idea of being seen is important for everybody. And maybe especially for the person who's had the affair. To be seen without judgment. More with curiosity and compassion. How did you get here? What do you want to do now? There is so much shade that gets thrown on both parts. One feels like the villain. One feels like the victim. And this idea to stand before someone is such a gift if it's done with compassion. Yeah, I think similarly... I, uh, whenever you're making these decisions, should I stay or should I go? Just like the person who's had the affair hopes someone will see them without judgment. As you're making those decisions, you also hope for non-judgment also. It occurs to me that people today throw much more shade on someone who stays than on the process of divorce, which sounds unanimously like a good idea. I mean, we grew up in, you know, very fundamentalist Christian homes where it was recognized that divorce was absolutely unacceptable. Except, except, pull out your highlighters here in case of infidelity. In which case, there was a wide latitude about what infidelity meant. It could mean something as disastrous as what we experienced, but it could go all the way down to he looked at a woman with lust in his eyes. And then you had the get out of jail free card. You could leave, but it wasn't just that you could. There was also a bit of a moral imperative. You should. And so to also be seen in those decisions without judgment, 
I can imagine being really important too. Stain is considered the new shame versus divorce. And the reason why is because women are more independent today. They're not relying on the masculine force in their home as they were before. So women have education. They have financial freedom. They have jobs that I would say almost equal men. And so the idea that this would happen to a woman and her having all of those assets and would still stay, that's where the shame lies. So those things like have some self-respect, woman up, do those things. Those are also a way to shame a woman. Right. So what we're really talking about here then is how to approach these roles of someone who's had this happen to them or someone who's done this and how to approach those and be approached in such a way where that shame is rendered neutral. So one thing here I want to actually say is it does require a little risk. You may in fact have to step out of your zone and risk being seen, maybe even risk being rejected in order to find the embrace, the forgiveness, the support that you long for. That is scary as hell. And I echo it 100%. Because I saw you reach out to more friends or more family members and be honest about the situation. Even though like you had a history of not doing that which is really wild. And I didn't. It took me a long time to feel like I could trust people or feel like I could handle my own emotions. And so it took me longer, I believe, to find that safety, to find that compassion, because I didn't risk as much as you did. You said something earlier that really made me pause. You said this confirmed, this telling uh, confirmed that I was broken. And if I told people, they would know something was wrong with me. So here's how you and I were different in that case. For months, I had been living with a sense, maybe even for years, that something was wrong with me. Now the cat was out of the bag and I was tired of holding it all inside. I was ready to, as much as I could think about it, let that be seen. I was tired of dealing with it alone. I think you were just at the beginning of your journey in that, right? For you, you were just figuring out there was a cat in the bag at all. Yeah, and that's where the struggle can come for couples or people, partners who go through things like this. The person that has been having affairs or having experiences, they know. Maybe they feel similar. And for the other party, it's a surprise and you're catching up. You're catching up to the reality. And so it does take a little bit to figure out what's happening. Mm, Yeah. We sought out during that time a number of people who I would describe as wise-minded. People who were not just civilians but who were actively involved in healing, uh, 
and working with individuals and couples, uh, therapists, uh, spiritual mentors and directors. I think that, at least for me, there was a real sense that I needed solid outside anchors to advise me and talk me through this. I remember at least two different profound encounters with older mentors who had both walked these kinds of places, who had had their own stories, now years in their past, uh, that had impacted them and led them to where they were. There was a deep humility to them. They looked back and the way they talked about it was very straightforward. This happened. I wasn't in the right. Uh, and here's what I did. There was a responsibility taking and a changed life on the other side. I knew when I went to talk to someone, that was the hallmark of what I wanted. I wanted someone who had both been through something, but also now had lived a changed life. They also had a great ability for attunement and this mirroring. When we think about these elements, we think about a mother attuning and mirroring her infant. And in these processes that we had with these particular folks, that attunement and that mirroring was there as though I know what this feels like. I've been there. You could see that they had the limp of pain and that they were willing to walk with you in that. And that was such a gift, that attunement to that moment. This stage, the crisis stage that you're talking about, it really is um, is a profound and impactful moment. And, you know, it's one where a lot of couples get stuck because you're squarely in the grieving process. There's been a death and you're seeing it. It's a bloodbath, right? There's an hour of devastation. Everyone is initially shook. Having people who are anchor points in your life, people who can hold this truth with you, who can be in the experience but still have a periscope up and can see land, they're able to help say, you're going to get through this. This difficult time will pass. You'll move into another phase of life. And maybe even they can add to that, I know, I have. That's really powerful. What I'm envisioning when we're thinking about the scene of the crime is when we all have our backs together. We all have our backs together so no one is blindsided anymore. We're working as a group. So we're shouldering the weight together. From my vantage point, this is what I see, what your vantage point you see, and the people around us whether it was their expertise or their compassion or their attunement or their participation, they had our backs. Your mother says, I need to call your dad. Says I need to tell him what's going on. Says that she's known now for several days and hasn't said anything to him yet, but something needs to be said and it had better be me. My gut feels like a lead balloon is being blown up inside of it. The bottom is falling out. 
I pick up the phone. I call him. I start into my story. He knows something's coming. He listens. I say, I, I cheated on Christy. I try and make it make sense. I try and tell the story in the same way I thought I lived it, with the characters that made a compelling drama, with the reasoning that had me looking something like good, and at times he would punctuate the story with, uh-huh, uh-huh. He would laugh. I was so grateful for his easy laugh in those moments. At times I could hear him get choked up on the other side. It took me an hour to cough the whole thing out and I don't think he said a word. Nonverbals, over the phone, reminding me that he was there. I get to the end. I've worked myself into a bit of a tither. I have no clue if he will meet me with the same silence that you've been met with now in others. And then he says it. He uses a story. A story from the Bible. A story of a young man who goes out and treats his family like shit. Who treats his father as if he were dead. Who squanders everything he has. And then lonely and broken and hungry asks to come home. The father doesn't sit at home doesn't wait for the son to come crawling on his knees, but instead gets up, leaves the house, and goes towards him. They meet. He welcomes him back, doesn't just welcome him back, throws a party for him, celebrates the son who was gone, but who returned. And he tells me this story, and then he pauses with dramatic effect and says, listen, I don't care so much what you did, but I do care that you came home. I'm sobbing at that point. I can't believe he's treated me with such kindness. I don't deserve anything like this. And then he smiles. I can hear the smile. And he says, but I'm also a coach. I've coached basketball a lot of years in my life. And when I have a player who's injured, where I have a player who something happens to them mid-game and mid-season, I am intimately invested in their recovery. And if you're telling me that you wish to get better and make this right, I am now a coach on your team who will be involved every step of the way. From here on out, 
you're letting me know how this goes and what recovery you're making. I'm on the team now. That story brings me to tears every single time. It's filled with compassion and hope and forgiveness. And when I hear about that exchange, first of all, it takes guts to have that that conversation to disclose. So I think about you in that place disclosing to my father the events that took place for both of you. It took immense courage, one to hold and one to share. And I am just floored whenever I hear that story. I think having that conversation was so healing to me at such a critical time. It was such an unexpected gift. I think at most I had hoped that he would hear what had happened and not hate me or excommunicate me. I didn't know exactly what to expect. I slightly feared that he would be in a car on his way down, you know, with a shotgun. And I'm not really even joking on that. You know, I, I, I had hurt his daughter and that was how I thought of it. I certainly didn't anticipate that he would not only extend this real and profound personal sense of forgiveness, but also that he would become a part of my team of support. Ultimately, our team of support in that moment, the gift of that can't be underestimated or overestimated, I guess. There was a sense of accountability, right? And being seen. That is one of the elements today when couples reach out and ask about this place that we've been. Oftentimes, I really feel like they're saying, See me, see me, and don't bring judgment. Just see me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That that was my signature. Oh. Line. <laughs>